Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, this is Dr. Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Forrest and Dr. Drew. Here we are. All right, welcome to another episode of This Life. Uh, you'll notice the intro is a little different than usual. Bob Forrest could not make it in today, but uh, I'm very privileged and pleased to bring in bring you all Mike Cathwood. Mike, welcome. Hey, hey. It's a pleasure uh, to be and, here. And we, we, we pushed this along. Bob could not get in. He also said he didn't really want to talk about this because he was so depressed. But on the heels of Chris Cornell's suicide, uh, we really felt it was important to do a podcast. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think... It wasn't that Bob doesn't want to talk about it. It was just not yet. No, no yeah. I, I, listen, I'm not disparaging Bob. He yeah. was rocked by this. But it, it, you know, it actually the first lady of love, Susan, our producer, is one that really, really pushed this thing along because she was aware, and I think appropriately so, how much this not just rocked Bob, it rocked everybody. Yeah, it this was. One, this is different. This somehow you are, feels different. If you are part of the music community, like Bob was, um, I think. It's a shame that more people don't know how important Bob was to that generation of rock and roll and punk rock. Chris or Bob? Bob. Oh, Bob, yeah, yeah. But if you, along with Bob, if you were a if you were a member of the rock or the punk community, alternative music community in a couple of those decades there, or if you were just a super big fan, um, the death of Chris Cornell is just devastating. Devastating. I mean, it's really devastating. Devastating. And you got to remember, he was Man of the Year for Music Cares. And then to hear now that his recovery got sabotaged by one of – I mean, I don't want to – listen, I'm not disparaging my peers. I don't know what decision-making went into you know, deciding to put this young man, 52 years old, Chris Cornell now gone, put him on lorazepam, Ativan. I would never do that. I would never allow that for any of my patients in recovery. Uh, it got out of hand. We don't know to what extent people were trying to get him off it. But there's no doubt that the – the relapse contributed to his demise. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, I don't know how anyone could argue that. Well, people are people are saying, well, he was anxious and depressed. That event might help. No, 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 no. Oh, well, here's the problem. You, you don't it probably addiction. did. It's a very effective drug, just yeah. like all drugs are effective at doing what they're supposed to do. If you have anxiety, I'm sure lorazepam is quite effective at dealing with it. What people don't understand, what Dr. Drew is alluding to with his peers – what the general public doesn't get is that it doesn't matter when it comes to the brain of an addict. Right. It may work for its given job, but it's going to have a devastating – a litany of devastating side effects to to the drug addict. You know? Yeah. Now, Mike and I – Mike obviously did uh, Love Line with me for several years. Those of you that know the show from Corolla, Mike took over after a while. Uh, and- Comfortably, I can say I'm at least the fourth best and Loveline, <laughs> and we've contemplated bringing back a Loveline podcast. I know there are a lot of people out there that have been asking that. We're, we're thinking about it. We're trying to figure out how to do it. Um, but we also have a KBC radio show, and you can get that podcast at doctor.com. It's uh, here in Los Angeles on 790 AM. And we talked about this on the AM show, and people like came in the room, and, oh, my God, that was a great discussion. I can't remember what we specifically said. I asked you something about... Can you imagine what it would be like or what would happen to you if somebody exposed you to these medications? Well, yeah, and I told you it's people have tried numerous times. And and I feel like that when it comes to doctors, RNs, uh, emergency room workers, EMTs, whoever it may be that is going to give uh, a barbiturate or – excuse me, a benzodiazepine or, or an, an SSRI that may be habit-forming. There's to, no SSRI. SSRIs are not habit forming. Oh, some, something along those lines. Opiate or benzoyl or PARP, yes. Okay. okay. A, a pharmaceutical agent that has potential for addiction, that triggers the reward system. Right. The, a stimulant, Adderall. Ugh. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I was, I was back then. I said there's an Adderall prescription at his bedside. Every one of these people either has everyone you can think of that has died of addiction or a complication of addiction. And by the way, I consider suicide and depression complications of addiction in many of these cases, as is the case here. As is the case here, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And you will find either some triggering agent like the Ativan or the Adderall in Philip Seymour Hoffman's case, or you'll find a bottle of benzodiazepine and opiate, which is a deadly combination for a drug addict. Well, I I, I got into like the the couple stories I have of, you know, I've been in recovery just just under 15 years and 
I, every time I go to visit a doctor for some unfortunate accident, if I pass out oh, tell from the story, my yeah. large poo. Tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> we went, I went to Coachella last year, not this most recent one. And my wife and I, I was very excited about seeing the real Guns N' Roses, not like yeah. Axel's bastardized versions. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I wake up in the morning. And uh, again, now let me point out, I'm very much drug and alcohol free. This is just a dude on a cup of coffee. And I tell my wife... Uh, I got to go to the bathroom, which is not surprising because I, I like to spend most of my time there. Follow his Instagram. You can see all the, the, yeah, I do. I all the glory that he documents. I document it. Um, and when I came out, I don't, I don't remember this, which is the most scary. But my wife says I was pale, naked. <laughs> and I looked at her and I gave her this funny look and just <laughs> fell backwards, smashed my head on the, on the oh, sink. God. Apparently, according to Dr. Drew and other medical professionals, I, uh, I I tripped my vasovagal nerve. Yeah, it's a vasovagal reaction. Yeah, and so I had to lay off the fiber because I guess I had too much of a too many monsters coming out. You're too much of a pussy, is what it boils down How to. <laughs> dare you? I'm surprised you don't get that when you're lifting something. You're deadlifting those heavy weights because that's a great way to trigger a vasovagal reaction. Yeah. Well, I, Do you ever get lightheaded after that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, so. I mean, it, once you work up to a certain like a respectable amount of weight, anybody who Olympic lifts or power lifts, yeah, you know, like. Keep keep something upright handy because yeah. or to go to your knees right after you finish. There's the lift. plenty yeah. of video on YouTube. Go just of just the deadlift alone of yeah. dudes like all right, big lift, whoop, <laughs> and smash their head on a dumbbell rack. Um, <laughs> so I, I I got rushed to the emergency room. Paramedics obviously were called because my wife was freaking out. And um, after I got uh, came to and kind of got fluids in me, I was in the emergency room and, and a, a nurse came over and. Um, said, okay, you know, to deal with the pain from smacking my head, here's some, I'm going to give you some morphine. And I was like, no, no, I'm a, uh, I'm a drug addict. I can't really have any morphine. And he said, oh, no, I'll control the dosage, uh, and I won't give you any to leave with. No, no, and no. And that, that right there... Um, it's a profound lack of understanding of how right, this thing works. Right. And it's the idea that, oh, well, if I don't have access to some when I leave, I can't obviously go take more morphine. The truth is, is that you can't regulate the dosage of what goes on in my brain. That's the, right. the reaction in so, my mind. So the, so the reward system gets activated and the, the thing gets reawakened, right? Yeah. So obfuscating, lying, distorting, isolating, all that stuff is what's activated when people get exposed to these chemicals. Now, if you got a dose of morphine, I can't say for the next two weeks you'd be screwed up. But if you got a couple of days of morphine, I can guarantee you for a couple of weeks you'll be screwed up. Uh, Shelly tells a great story of waking up in her disease, knowing she was in her disease, obfuscating, bullshitting, lying, distorting, manipulating, isolating, and couldn't do anything about it. I'd figure out a way to get more, even if I wouldn't like to. Like somehow, some way, I know. You just know I, that would go. Uh, like especially that. a drug that good. Yeah. I mean, if, if I like accidentally ate a pot Let, brownie. Let's say you couldn't. Let's say you lived in a world where you couldn't get it. What would that do to your moods and your anxieties and your sense of desperation? Well, it would it would make me panicky and it would make me really angry that I was kind of tickled. But I, you know, it'd be like going. What would you, what would you be like? You know, to be let around? me tell you, it'd be like going to like a shady Asian massage parlor to get a to get a, a happy ending, and then she just gives you a little massage. I'd be like, well, what what are we doing here? Then I just I would what, inevitably have to walk the streets of Alhambra to find the next place to get me to finish it off. Or. <laughs> Or would you would you start to isolate yeah. and become brooding and become? Would you think of hurting yourself? Well, yeah, is there a world where that happens? Yes, because I and I I, I know. I mean, I can assume I'm a 38 year old man now. It's been I was 22 years old last time I used drugs. But um, if if I uh, so if have, I if I, I I'm the type of guy that's not I'm not an angry a violent person when I get high or when I get drunk. I isolate. I yeah. isolate even well, that's more. The, see, that's and the part. That's the part I think people. I would get. just cut my wife and my daughter out of yeah. my life, which yes. would be obviously you would cut everything off and you'd, you'd be in in your disease by yourself in your disease spinning. The thing is, though, I feel like and when, then you'd feel shame and guilt and all that stuff, and then who knows where that would go when the when the shrink gives the the drug addict Xanax, or when the guy at the hospital tried to give me morphine. I do feel like it, it's clearly a profound misunderstanding of the the disease of addiction. But I do think the motives are all twisted. Oh, I don't think no, anybody's no. sitting back going, ha, ha, wait oh, till no, I... Oh, no, no, Mike, that, you know? never in a million years would but, I, but, I suggest. But, I think, but what bothers I think me the is... Bu- it, I think the public is confused in that regard. Oh, I my think gosh, the, no. There's this assumption that you're like... It's it's a pejorative that you're saying this about no, you know, the no, medical no. It, industry. It's, it's, I'm not... I, I, I'm frustrated that they don't get right, it. Right, I'm just right. frustrated that... 
I, I've been chanting about how this disease works for decade and a half, and yet this is still going on. Still, going on. at least we're getting somewhere with the opiate addiction. We're finally getting somewhere with that. I was I was reminded the other day when Heath Ledger died, mm-hmm. didn't have addiction. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> that's a drug drug addict dead. That's how they all die. Yeah. And remember, the dad was on a campaign to say he wasn't an addict and all this stuff. Remember that? What's the point though? I, I, I don't know. Is, well, it, is there still that shame? Well, yeah, I guess it's weird, but. Uh, you and I don't understand that, but right. but I guess some people feel that. But my, I was reminded that that day I, w- I went on some some sort of platform and said, "This is the the lip of the wave of the tsunami that's coming our way." Right, and it was, and here we are, here we are. I I don't necessarily understand it, and this is coming from the mouth of a guy. I absolutely love drugs, and I love them with a. A, well, a almost an, uh, an incalculable passion. Well, this is the, <laughs> and I still it, don't fun. understand how people are so hung up. What I mean by that but is, they, but they don't understand what that means. People don't understand that. They they don't get that because they because most people most people non addicts don't have that relationship with chemicals. Right, and right. you do. Right, and so right. explain that to people. I love it like you would love your dog. I love it like I don't. I'm unsure, and I hate saying this out loud because it makes me feel bad. I'm unsure I'll ever get to the level where I'll love people, any person, including my child and my wife, like yeah. I used to love cocaine well, and, and whiskey. Can, can I tell you that that's progress? Yeah. Be, because you used to say there's no way you'd ever find anything. I think, oh, of I course. Think, I think your daughter changed that. Without question. Yeah. yeah no, it changed me, changed me dramatically in a lot of ways. I don't want to be so cliche. It's like, well, it changes the whole world for you. Of course, having a child changes everything unless you're a sociopath. But it... Um, I, I can't explain that. I, I have this general malaise now where I go, nothing kind of scratches that itch in the same way where I didn't even have to have it yet. It was just knowing that I only had 30 more minutes of work left and I could be at my dealer's house. Oh, the joy of of the sun setting and the rainbows that would form for my for me if I could get high and, and get and, drunk. And again, to, to defend your – to help people understand what this is, the same part of the brain that's triggered by his love for his daughter – is triggered by these chemicals. So that same thing that you can feel yeah. for your daughter is co-opted by this thing we call addiction. Hey, okay, people listening, um, people watching that have children, you know how your kids can... You may be a very reasonable, very uh, level-headed person. Your children will force you to do really wacky, unreasonable stuff right. because you just want to make sure that they're okay right. and you love them so much. Uh, very passive Gentlemen, um, if someone uh, was texting and texting almost hit their kid, a very passive guy might just jump right through that guy's windshield and beat the, you know, whatever. And and the drugs were the same way. It's like I never was a a angry, violent. um, I never wished anything. I certainly wasn't a dishonest guy. And I could become the biggest silver tongue liar in the world (laughs) just because for the sake of I needed to get high. I needed it. And um, And here's the thing that people don't. Here's another example of that same thing. I had a, a young man say to me once. He goes, he he, he goes, uh, he got very suicidal, and you know, and people when they're suicidal with addiction, they often want to kill the addict, not yeah. not themselves. They just want the disease to end. Sure. They get so frustrated with it. Again, another thing people don't understand. And he said to me, he goes, I don't know if you're going to understand this. He goes, but the second time he had been through a couple of suicidal sort of things, and the second time he went, I had a gun in my mouth. I was ready to do it, but I couldn't. He goes, I don't know how to express this, and it may sound funny to you. But I couldn't do that to my drugs. In other words, I love them too much. I'd be gone. Leave, I'd be to, gone from cocaine world or I, meth world. That's or whatever. right. Yeah. I love them too much to leave them behind. I love them like my children. I always felt like I was buried. Like I felt like there was this. This clearly, you could touch and feel this meat wagon that was around drugs and passion for drugs. But inside, there was this core always of of needing to get inebriated that fueled me. And it was, it was, um, it, it really was all encompassing. It was like, I, I, I used to say, I felt like I was, I was buried alive by myself. Yeah. Oh, geez. That's a great description. When I was, when I was 21 I, years I, old, I, I remember say, living, yeah. I was, you know, I, I, I had like the, you couldn't create a, a better, more supportive upbringing, uh, for, for a person if they wanted to do whatever in life. And um, I was at the time living in flop houses and, and, and meeting new people just so that I could crash on their couch so that I could keep using, keep using whatever, whatever money I had, I, yeah. I would give to, to my addiction. And I remember uh, this guy, um, Adam, who was the, the only source of drugs for me at the time. Uh, he was the gayest guy that's ever lived. 
but yet he never ever uh pushed on me in in that way but we used to hang out he was an old guy i was 21 22 he would um he and i would hang out all day every day and he had a ton of dough and he would he and i just would sit there and smoke smoke rock cocaine all the time and i remember telling him that i just i feel like uh it's not like the world's coming down on me or I have the world's weight on my shoulders. I feel like I have the weight of myself on top of Ugh. the real me and I'll never be able to kind of get out of it. Wow. That, was the, that was the only way I could describe that it. That is a very vivid, profound. Yeah. Anybody saying anything on Facebook there? Is he... Mark? Oh, Susan's watching it. Because uh, we're going to get into the Chris Cornell depression next. That's our next sort of version of this. Well, one guy was asking, he's weaning off of Kalanzapan with uh, Neurontin. He wants to know yeah. how long to keep doing that. Uh, well, the, the Neurontin... See, I, I'm a I'm a big believer in I, I don't think tapering is a good idea. They, this tapering has become the thing now. I, tapering is a terrible idea. Humbly, my opinion. Not, I'm not saying you can't taper. I've never found it to be useful or good. I can get somebody off something. So they spend five to seven days in the hospital or whatever, and then they have some post acute withdrawal. We can treat that, and it's over. It's done. Yeah. It's done. It's done. And uh, with the clonopin, a long acting benzodiazepine, the withdrawal is about a year. So you need to take moderate to high dose Neurontin for like a year and expect that because you'll have sleep disturbances and irritability and more panic than usual, more anxiety than usual. And that's all what we call post-acute withdrawal from uh, benzodiazepines. And Ativan is a very close relative of clonazepam or clonopin. And, uh, you know, Chris, I guess, was on it for four years, I'm hearing. And that's just, oof, and it had been escalating doses as it always is in addiction. You can't, with addicts, you can't maintain the same value, therapeutic value. They naturally escalate. They naturally use too much even without them realizing it. And so if you have an addict who's, who's very enthusiastic about being your patient, telling you're the greatest doctor ever, making appointments on time, paying their bills, you be careful with the medication you're giving them because yeah, that may motivate it, them. My, my, my shrink has a hard time dragging me into his office. Yeah. You know why? Because yeah. he gives me Wellbutrin. <laughs> it doesn't do any... I can't feel anything. Believe, he, believe he you me. He makes you work hard. If he was giving me Xanax bars, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be like waiting at his front door every day when he opened up the, That's opened right. up the office. You'd be singing his praises everywhere. And, um, uh, you know, another thing that you pointed out is that there's this, there's this notion from normies, meaning people who are not addicts, and I, and I don't say this as if like, Oh, because I've been through what I've been through. I know more. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm so jealous and envious that you can have a drink like a gentleman and not uh, end up uh, with, you know, a, a dick pic on, on Instagram. Imme- That's another thing is that people cannot – I cannot describe how uh, – I remember the sec- the last time I relapsed before I got clean for good, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, is that there there was this feeling of, sure, I only had one drink and my tolerance was always very high. But as soon as it hit my lips, I could feel it opening up in my body. It's like poison yeah. for for an ad, what whatever you know that that reward system when it's triggered. I can it, it's as if you know someone in a Shakespearean play drinking poison. It's only you may be aware you're going to die. It doesn't happen immediately, but you're dead. You're dead. You're you're. I, was, I just sit there and I go, uh oh, because I know <laughs> I comes, know it. Yeah, and th- there's another difference uh, that people don't understand. There's a difference in, in the brain mechanisms between wanting and liking. Right, when you're an addict, it's usually both. But even when you stop liking it anymore, you can't stop the wanting, and that's where the disease really takes over. It, there was a good amount of time, at least, uh, well over a year, where I would be using every single time I was using, and I did, I didn't like it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even enjoy, enjoy the high. I wanted to go to sleep. I wanted to, I wanted to look good. Every, next time I went home to visit my parents, I wanted to not look like a ghost. I wanted to, like I said, have a nice meal, and and I. But you I not feel like that. But I couldn't. I couldn't stop. stop. Yeah, I couldn't. I, every single day. And smokers out there know the feeling. I, I guarantee you, the last T- thousand tobacco, tobacco smokers. Yeah, the real? last oh, yeah. thousand cigarettes yeah. you have, you don't yeah. even like it. You just yeah. have to have it. You have. You finish your meal. You're like, what am I doing? This yeah. sucks. It's yeah. a million degrees outside. Why would I do this? But you can't stop. That's a, that's a, a very clear way of noticing. Yeah, tobacco that. is a good wanting drug. Stimulants are wanting drugs more than they, you like them to some extent. That's why you start with them. But you the convince yourself you over. need it though, and that, that's the well, biggest that's the problem. Disease. With the that. disease makes you think all kinds of crazy stuff. But it's times a million with opiate-based painkillers yeah. because yeah. you couple it with the my brain is telling me I seriously have pain. I have pain and it hurts, and I need this to stop the pain. Yeah, and I'm sure somewhere along the line you had legitimate pain. You got yeah. you you know you hurt yourself at work or whatever. But your your brain convinces you like, well, because of pain, I get this amazing feeling. Therefore, I have pain. You yeah. know, and it, let me let me bring up uh, as long as we're talking about this, I'll bring up a, a, a uh, email I got. 
Uh, this guy is writing on behalf of his wife, who suddenly one day felt a, st- a sharp, stabbing electric pain on the left side of her face. Uh, it dissipated about 20 minutes, but then it came back, and the rest of her life has been this pursuit of pain. Oh, my pain. gosh. Now, two things for him to know. One is there there are very sophisticated neurosurgeons out there that know how to sort of image the the trigeminal nerve, which is a nerve that gives uh, pain perception to the face. And very occasionally, there can be nodes on that that can be sort of scraped off. There are things that can be done. So make sure she sees sort of quaternary centers like university center neurosurgery departments that really know about that kind of pain. He goes on to talk about how the you know he's seen doctors and he can't get anybody to do anything. Uh, they finally saw somebody at pain medicine. His recommendation was to get off the Percocet and see a chiropractor and maybe do some water aerobics, and he was upset. But he, here's what that is. Opiates make chronic – first of all, I'm, I'm, with the, I'm concerned that, that this persistent pain may be something called a reflex sympathetic dystrophy type syndrome, but in your, in your face rather than the limb where it normally develops. And that, I'm telling you, is triggered by opiates. So the whole thing may be triggered by opiates. Opiates are not an effective treatment for chronic pain. It makes the pain worse over time and sort of indoctrinates it. It creates a part of your brain to misfire called the insula cortex that amplifies the misery of pain. So you're constantly in a panic over the pain. Even those somatic expression may not be that bad. So he's searching for – his question is, is addiction to pain medication really a concern for people in chronic pain? Absolutely severely. Even the pain management people realize that they say 35% of people that they treat have problems controlling it. doesn't mean they're a drug addict. Yeah, they're addicts. And I, 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 I will tell you it's more like 60 to 70% because I spent the latter part of my career just taking people like your wife off opiates and their pain goes away. Not away, but it gets dramatically better. And, and uh, if I could just add a little yeah. to to because I'm sure your wife's seriously suffering. Yeah. Well, it's, the suffering is that without it question. Gets, it's it gets horrible. worse before it's, it gets better. You yes. know, like. well, no, they, you know, they, yes, that's why I, I cold turkey everybody, with, particularly in this kind of situation. Though Suboxone may have a role to play here. Dr. Bruce, if you watch Weekly Infusion, listen to Weekly Infusion, he, he's a big believer that that can help somebody like this, and it might. But she's somebody with resources and a motivated spouse and, you know, wants to go get it taken care of. You should want that. And, uh, you know, when in my world, when we treated this, You'd have five miserable days. You would. And guess what? You won't really even think about it or remember it after the fact. And we can do things to make it tolerable. Uh, at least I used to be able to do it. It seems like that's an art that's gone now. Yeah. You know, it's fun. I'm like, the one thing I never, ever, ever thought to myself when I was taking people off opiates was, God, I sure wish I had some better tools to get them off the opiates. I, I, I had everything I needed. I never had a problem people getting people off heroin or anything. It's so weird to me that, that we had to come up with a better way to do it. And, and the one symptom that was really – So American. Yeah, I know. But they're, they're like – We got to tape. We got to make it comfortable. Well, oh, also that certain drugs aren't good enough. Yeah, like only Americans would <laughs> right. be like, well, this is pretty awesome, but I'm sure there's something <laughs> I, else on the horizon. I, 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 could- I never thought to myself, I wish we had better ways to get people off opiates. Never. I never had a problem. It was, it was never an issue. Yeah. The one symptom that was difficult to control – uh, and people are missing now still to this day, they're not talking about it, is desperation. You know, sometimes in your withdrawal, right. you get that desperate feeling. And desperation is really just your disease going, go get drugs. That's all that is. And you can manage desperation with engagement, with with even interpersonal engagement. I, I've seen it go from a 10 to a zero just by putting somebody in a room with another person. And, and there are medications that can help it too. I, I, yeah, alcoholics that get desperate, Camprol can be very useful. All right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back to talk about Chris Cornell. And I'd like, of course, you've heard me rave about these guys. It's a product that I actually wanted to develop myself. I, I conceived of this. I knew it was needed. It was already in Australia, and now it is here. It works. The feedback is unanimous. Even though it's great to use, though, when you're sick or dehydrated, you can use it every day, especially now that the weather is changing. It's hot. So whether you're exercising or maybe you've got seasonal allergies or you drank too much or you got vomiting or diarrhea, whatever it might be, you can reduce fatigue and keep feeling healthy as well. Once you've started feeling dehydrated, sometimes a little too late. So you want to stay hydrated and rapid rehydration if you do get dehydrated, it requires a proper balance of sodium, glucose, and water, and nothing provides it like hydrolyte. I'm telling you, it's the same as an IV fluid via your mouth, via your enteral system. It's based on established, proven science, quite simply the best rehydration product out there. And it comes in great flavors. They have those fizzy tablets. Also, they have a powder and a premixed drink. Compared to other sports drinks, hydrolytes delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugar. 
Hydrolyte solutions are appropriate for all ages, and each bottle or package includes easy-to-follow directions. All right, you can find Hydrolyte at Rite Aid or online at Amazon or click through at drdrew.com. And for more information, visit Hydrolyte.com. That is Hydrolyte, H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E, Hydrolyte.com. And we are back. And uh, one of the things people get confused about is what makes an addict an addict. It's 60% of it is genetics alone. We say that you know addiction is accounted for on the sixty percent by addiction by genetics alone, but you get, you sort of got it. It's a necessary sort of re- requisite. You got to have the gene. You got to have a positive response to the drugs. I hate opiates. They make me feel like crap. So I, it's hard to be an opiate addict. Well, fun, one of the funny thing. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Hated. I, I I loved heroin if I mixed it with meth or cocaine. Okay. I uh, hated the feeling of any opiate based anything. I was just like, well, this. Just I don't want to drool on myself in the corner for four hours. But, that but sucks. I, but it sucks different. I feel dysphoric. Mm. I feel like, ugh. You should try PCP. <laughs> but, but the point is you have, to, you have to respond positively to the drug. You have to have the genetic potential of the wanting to get out of control and progress. That's a genetic thing. And then the question people always ask, why do you use drugs in the first place? The, the, sometimes it's just because it feels good. Sometimes you're just exposed to it and you get going with it. Sometimes you're a truck driver and you're taking amphetamines to stay awake and then you get going on it. Sometimes it's because you were – playing high school football and somebody gave you opiates for too long and it gets going. But a lot of times it's something called affect dysregulation where moods are too prolonged, too intense, too negative. It's a whole other sort of discussion talking about how people develop the capacity to regulate their own emotions. But we don't do a good job of it in this country today. So a lot of people feel crappy all the time. And depression is a sort of a corollary to that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's really kind of Chris Cornell's story here that spoke so loudly to people. Like in the 90s, I didn't understand that people your age that sort of the grunge scene spoke to you so vividly. Part of what spoke to you was this poetry about depression. Well, and, and also you have to couple that with the fact that, yes, there was this amazing music that really detailed the, the general malaise, especially for boys in well, that what, age. What, what was that? Well, it was this. It was... In the 80s and in, in, in any kind of decade or generation prior to that, it was really cool to be a jock, to wear your, to wear your varsity uh, you know, letterman's jacket to school and yeah. to be the captain of the football team. All that went away. All the masculine in, in the nineties, anything, anything of posture, uh, it was really cool. I'm sure to have like the nicest car in the parking lot in the in high school in the eighties. If you got a nice car in the nineties, you were a tool. Uh. But also, all the counterculture stuff made you a tool to like the popular to chicks. Like it was almost impossible to do something that you thought was identifiable as as a as a as a trope, you know, for a, for a boy. And also be appealing. So there was this. So, this, so males, and you, and, particularly. And we had no, it wasn't like there was a Vietnam for us. There was no draft. There was no Great Depression. Uh, it seemed like the economy was ex- overflowing. Um, and and the, when we did go to war, it was laughable. I mean, George Bush just went and smashed Iraq, and, and it looked, seemed like weeks. So we thought life is utterly meaningless at this point. There is no great struggle, there is no, there's nothing to really. Um, what do you think the source of that was? I, I get the feeling, but I, I don't. I think it was the convergence of a lot of things. I think it legitimately was an incredible market. That was the first tech boom, you know, the the nineties as as the as the internet really developed and became popular. And then so, also, was it was it this, the too much opulence? Because the eighties, the sort of reaction to the eighties though, wasn't it? The 80s without were question, super uncool. I, and and if you look at music alone, I mean, Nirvana became. Nirvana was the gateway into grunge, without question. I remember what I was doing, how I how I was sitting on my parents' couch watching KDOC Total Request video, <laughs> when the first time I saw "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and I and right there I was like, I don't like Skid Row, I like Nirvana. I don't like, uh, you know, White Snake. I like Nirvana. It was a whole shift, shift right Boom. there. But you know that that it was a, it was a rally cry, much like with the invention of punk to begin with. It was. A, you know, guys got into punk bands. You you listen to Black Flag because you hated Foghat. You know, it was that that yeah. the, kind of the grandio- grandiosity yeah, I of things. I understand that's a reaction to what came before, but but what was it speaking to? I still don't quite get because because I remember Gen X. You know, there was a lot of talk about them being entitled, and they they were part of that tech boom and just expected to get you know high paying jobs. Let me tell you why. And that all burst on them too that because all- I'm not Gen X, and I'm not I'm not a millennial. 
I'm this forgotten. I'm society's forgotten culture, and there's a there's millions of other people just so like me. Do you me. think they're the ones? I'm really? not a baby boomer. I'm not Gen X, That's and I, I'm not a millennial. I was just this kind of bleh people that came about. You know, <laughs> that I was born waiters. in 1979, and and I and I feel like people born two years before me, two years after me, around that around that era, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And Where Nate held you, 35. So does this speak to you? What Mike's saying, spot on. And, so and there you I'll, go. And, and were you rocked by Chris's passing? You were not a Soundgarden fan, but but it, it, I think he's on to why. Yeah, he's the icon of your guys' generation. Yeah, I mean, and, and it did feel interestingly because as somebody who watched, you know, has been, I've been in radio so damn many years, I've seen all these different sort of musical movements. It felt like that one was very short, even though the grunge kind of went on for a while. It felt like the the meat oh, of it ended when people started dying. Oh, there was plenty of there was plenty of. Um, derivative kind of rip-off yeah, bands that different. just down-tuned their guitars and went, oh, I hate my dad. Well, but as far became, as the reality of it, but the it became meat like, of it. it became like sort of Blink-182. Well, pop-punk came about. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and the idea of making music that was happy, yeah. but was still had... Well, it was Grunge punk, elements. Was, was cool again. And, and believe it, me, that was a welcome change. It was not as punk as the punk-punk. No, was, no, you know, no. Like Goldfinger was, you know... You uh, had to... But Goldfinger themselves, I mean, John, you asked John about it. You, there, you wore it like a like a badge it was that, a happy that I'm Bob, not Bob. writing about I'm not writing about depression I'm not writing yeah, about right. uh, a, a morose uh, a despondency yeah. I'm writing about chicks yeah, and, and right. you know. so 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 let's dig in this a little bit so so but that didn't speak to me it, it was you know look I was I was nine years old and everyone I saw on MTV lived a life that looked like it might as well have been flying to Mars on spaceships. It was fantasy. It was escapism. Yeah. And then 1992 happens, 1993, Bad Motor Finger comes out, 91, I'm 12 years old. I progressed to, I see people, I was like, that guy is just like me. Rivers Cuomo, you know, Chris Cornell obviously was beautiful, but besides that, he, was, he wasn't he was wearing leather pants and getting out of a limousine. Right, right. I'm like, those dudes, are, they're, they're trying to, at least, maybe I don't get it. Maybe I'm not there yet. They're trying very hard to, for a sense of realism. And at that moment but it was in time- But depressive. Exactly. Why the depression? Why was depression such a big piece of that? Because, I mean, it was Seattle. You know, Seattle, I was thinking about cloudy and depressed. Yeah. The clothing was drab. Everything was- Blah. Like you said, you, what was happening to you guys? Were you just feeling abandoned or left out? Yeah, they're, they're, without question to left me. Left out. Left out of the party. Like the party is happening. You guys aren't invited. And, and everyone celebrated the idea of youthful mischief or uh, enthusiasm and that you know, my generation was the last generation of not getting a trophy, every kid getting a trophy, but it wasn't the 1950s where every you know where they yeah. tell the fat kid on the team that he was a fat pile of s right i, I was kind of like we were but you also we were society's forgotten children but that it also was, feels like you couldn't be male all the things that before had been associated with being male or male gratification at least not open to you I, i'll never forget uh i was probably i don't know 16 and i was reading a, a book, a Henry Rollins, just like a diary entry book. It was like kind of just a, a scribbles of him when he was on tour. Yeah. And he described a situation that happened to him in 19, probably 83, that was exactly like what had happened to me in 1994. I, a bunch of like kids like me, just like skate punks, but they, but I was all, I also played sports. I just kind of was trying to fit in, dude. Yeah. They were picking on a kid that was young, younger by one grade. And I'm by no means like Mr. Tough Guy, but. Uh, they were. It was. It seemed kind of senseless, and I beat the crap out of a kid. And then instead of oh, what a f- philanthropic, courageous thing to do, it's like macho jock punk. And it's like, so wait a second. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a puss if I don't do any. If I just sit back and stay quiet in the back of the room, I'm I'm, I'm an emo puss if I if I sit back and write poetry. But I'm a I'm a macho jock dick if I try to do anything even remotely aggressive or masculine Th- that you were chastised even for a good purpose yeah. for an important purpose and i you know i, I remember uh, rollins telling the story about like being at a show and, and like a small guy getting picked on and, and jumping off the stage and beating the, the beating up the bigger guy and instead of it's like you suck hey we're gonna spit on you and then when you did that it's like oh you're a macho jock get out of here yeah you know, it's like there, there's this notion of I feel like crap, so I need you to feel like crap, and I'm not gonna. We're not gonna celebrate the fact that we all feel like crap. Let's just live our invisible lives and listen to this music that kind of speaks to us. And so, know? and so, Chris spoke loudly to that that feeling. Yeah, and and but but the difference was is that a lot of 
grunge bands, much like the the first wave of punk, they didn't necessarily have musical talent. They just were writing great songs and something relatable. Soundgarden was amazing. Yeah, you know, Kim would would, would rip and noodle, and then you heard this guy who was, by the way, I mean, it makes a difference. Chris Cornell was a beautiful man. And a super nice guy, And too. he would pull off his shirt and then peel the paint off the walls with this, like, five-octave voice. Yeah. And you're just like, well, that, what the heck am I, this is amazing. You so, know? He was, so he was speaking to you about the malaise and the depression and inspiring. Right, at right. At the same time. And, and, and it was. What do you think happened? It was also, like, Soundgarden, in comparison to say like the Lilith Fair music that was coming out right before it, Sheesh. Soundgarden was unashamedly powerful. Yeah, you know, like they just came at you with with really aggressive riffs and down tuning, but it didn't sound it didn't sound disingenuous, you know. And that dude, being twelve years old when I first heard Outshined, and I said, "Well, there it is." Now, now I don't need to be uh, I don't need to be confused about what it is to be masculine in today's world you know even though i might get laughed at if i wore a letterman's jacket at least there's something out there that's that's aggressive and powerful what do you think chris was feeling probably i you know if i could only guess towards the end here because i i didn't know the guy i met him once he was super nice super guy. nice guy yeah. um but i i'm guessing that you know you you get those things where this is this wasn't my goal man i'll take it if you're I'm supposedly your voice mouthpiece. I'm I'm saying something that's relatable. I'm just a singer that I feel like this is this is my where I belonged in the world. I don't I don't think that anyone of that generation had this desire to be. Oh man, I'm going to speak to the generation of the left behinds. Do you what? Like, so I, I'm trying to figure out what was going on that led to the Ativan in the first place. Just depression. Well, you know, he could be a chemically seriously yeah, depressed yeah, guy. Right. I mean, but I you, still take SSRIs every day. Explain what that means. I mean, people would have trouble imagining you're depressed just the way they would with Chris Cornell. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure everybody sees down times. I know, I know that's part of the human experience. Right. right. But for me, uh, I got this initial burst of, hey, I'm pulling my life together. I'm a young man, and I'm getting off drugs and alcohol, and I got my life ahead of me. And it lasted for about six months. Then I realized, oh, I'm still the same guy. <laughs> and um, I just, I genuinely, even from as far back as I can remember, every single doctor, any mental health professional is the first thing you see them. Well, how long have you been depressed? I go, well, I just remember life like this. This isn't, I can't imagine waking up in a world. I can, I can motivate myself. I can create it. I can manifest it. Reasons to want to go on. I I can't be on I, to be honest with you. I'd never woken up a day in my life and thought I'm just happy to be alive. You know, it just doesn't happen that way. It doesn't. Does your, does your daughter shift that a little bit? I am happy to be with her and see her growing up. I can't necessarily say that it makes me happy. Okay, and happy defined as feeling good. Yeah, feeling good. like legitimately. Even when I'm yeah. doing something I enjoy, which by the way, I don't even know what that is. It's kind of few and far between. That's part of depression. That's a, that's a big piece of depression. Right, is l- lack of enjoyment things. I um, you know, when people ask me uh, if I do some new TV show and they they're going to do yeah. a bio of the host, yeah, they go, "Well, what are some of your hobbies?" Like, oh. yeah. I mean, I like to work out, and they're like, "Oh, you're a big fitness person." I'm like, "No, I don't really like it. I just do it because I don't want to be a fat slob." And, and there's just nothing that I can truly say. Well, like, oh man, I look forward to this. You know why? Because I don't have what I really look forward to, and that's getting high. It, it, it sounds like you romance the sadness a little bit. There is a, there, I and, mean, and, and I'm wondering if the music, if you know, the guys like Chris Cornell amplified that. Yeah, not in a bad way. I'm just wondering if it just sort of happened. Well, you know, it gave me it gave me the best friend I ever had when I was isolating. Yeah, especially when I was young. You know, from I would say from 14 to 20. I was so desperate to be alone. I, I just didn't feel like I was ever comfortable when I was in public. Mm. And so when you're alone in your room and you have a record that is slow and morose and, and, and kind of sad and has some words that are really well written and eloquent about being despondent, it just gives you this little this boost of uh this boost of of, of support almost. You know, you feel like I, I, I for now I have I likened it to being a, a little kid and having imaginary friends. You, oh, yeah. You just, yeah. you're 15 and you recognize, like, I'm alone here, but I got this record. Yeah. At least it gives me something to kind of, yeah. you know. No, that's good because that's what you need yeah. is, is to fill, fill the, the empty, is there emptiness to it then? 
I don't want to go. Well, yeah. I mean, I that's the part that carries over is is that that feeling of lack of joy. Yeah, it's, it's well, very, emptiness is different than lack of joy. But I was going to say it's yeah. still very vacant, though. It's, yeah. it's a if you feel very vacuous when you wake up and you're just kind of, you know, I can to be honest, I, I go to work and I do these things and I work out whatever it may be any any kind of positive uh, things that I do, I do it to go through the motions. I'm doing it because I feel like people tell me I'm supposed to, not because I have this general inside desire to do it. And that leaves you very, uh, very vacant. Uh, much, uh, listen, like sleeping around. Yeah. I told you about that. Like people, girls have this assumption like, oh, you, you know, you guys get labeled as studs if you, if you bang a bunch of chicks, but girls get labeled as studs. I go, yeah, but you still feel just as bad at the end. Don't let any guy convince you otherwise. It's awesome. I pro- if I was single, I probably would be still banging around. Every single time I did it, I wake up in the morning and be like, "Oh man, yeah, yeah, feel bad." That does not feel Wor- good. Yeah, worry about what you did to somebody else, right? And stuff. Yeah. Right. Uh, I remember before therapy for me, I had I had I was thinking about this today or yesterday. Today I was thinking about it that I had a lot of emptiness. That was one of the feelings I had, and I had, one, had longing for the end of longing. It was a weird. It was a weird feeling. You know that longing feeling? Yeah, yeah. I had longing for the end of longing. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's weird. Uh, let me let me just read an email here real quick. It's a recovering opiatic for almost two years. I still have nightmares regularly about using. I still find that it's mm-hmm. always on my mind every day. I feel like my brain is broken. I don't know how to quit wanting the drugs. How do I stop this? I, I always say like your brain may be broken, but it's broken in a in a like an antique vase, not broken like a like a, a new Chinese made toy. It's <laughs> right. broken in a beautiful way, right? And it is. It, there are always going to be those cracks in the vase. But once you put it back together, you'd be like, man, this is from the Ming Dynasty. Yeah, it's got and all you the... Look at the character. It's got, or like, it's a, got the or like raw denim. You know, these guys yeah. that pay millions, uh, thousands of dollars for denim from the 30s because it's got all the patina of life. Yeah. That's that's your brain. I, I, I still have using dreams. Those suck, man. Those really suck. They suck, but they're important. Yeah. I, I really... I, I There's nothing more difficult to manage than somebody who has it all together because that person thinks their disease is gone. Somebody has reusing dreams, let them motivate you to get to the next meeting, call your sponsor, do whatever you got to do. When, when your disease reminds you it's there, it sucks, it's a reminder, but it's a great reminder. It's a good reminder that you need to keep taking your insulin, just like if you were a diabetic, you need to keep going to meetings, keep contacting sober people, or giving back, whatever, whatever it is for you to stay sober. You've got to work on it every damn day. Uh, I have a guy, just a quick thing, I just got here an email, it says, it's a guy... He's in there as Charlie Lindbergh. I have a feeling that's a gnome de plume. Uh, I've never contacted a public person, but I want to say your podcast with Adam and the one you do alone keep me sober. I'm an airline pilot with nine years plus um, sober. I listen to the podcast. Uh, When I'm on a layover, I'll run a lot and listen to you. It helped immediately. I can uh, be in certain places. When you say something, it makes me stop and it hits home for me. I'm hoping this one today really helps because Mike's being very open and forthcoming about it. The thing you feel, I know you feel it, man. It's nine years sober. Whoever you are, contact me too, because I want to know about the the poontang ability of an airline pilot. I bet it's just <laughs> off the charts. I've I've triggered Shooting your fish in the barrel. I've triggered your banging around gene. Also. Oh yeah. So, oh, so um, somebody said, "I love you guys together. It makes me feel better. I really appreciate it. I'm chronically depressed. I have been in therapy and continue in therapy, and understand I'm depressed. It doesn't go away." Right. So, so let's let's talk about that because I actually that's a good thing to talk about, which is having realistic expectations about what you know mental health treatment can do. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have to. There's, there's a certain amount of misery that's normal, and there's a certain amount of misery that sort of I don't want to call it misery so much as but imperfect treatment, discomfort, discomfort, discomfort. Yeah. There's and, it, and it's okay. It's okay to have some discomfort and some un, un, unpleasant feeling states. Um, that you really have to start to look at this kind of what you're doing by working out and stuff. You know, what is it you want to do? What is it you want to do? This is this is an unpleasant feeling I get to live with. Yeah. Now what? <laughs> now what do I do to be lead a good life? Yeah, and and I I will say this that I, I don't know if I'll ever achieve this this notion of being fully happy, but I do think that identifying discomfort identifying something that may be uncomfortable and, and maybe a struggle and running towards it instead of running away does give me a sense, uh, at least a better sense of, of self-meaning. Um, right. That, that emptiness. Me- having a meaningful life sometimes is more important than anything else. Right. 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 
Yeah. And, and, and we've lost that. We've lost track of that. Well, the, you know, and I don't, everybody likes to bemoan millennials. I go, dude, it's not their fault. Of course. Every not. one of their idols, all they talk about is their car and their clothes <laughs> and their Instagram account. Everyone that they grew up looking up to. Yeah. How, what, do you, what do you expect a 16 year old kid to be worried about? Do you think he, do you think he's like someone in 1929 who wants to put food on his depression era family's plate? No. He has, he has little Bow Wow lying about being on a, a private jet. It's not even their fault. They have an, and, an, and a computer in their hand. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. That's another thing. Dude, look, it's, it's really hard to find meaning in your life when life is so awesome. Life in 2017, much like when I was a little kid, I mean, it's not like I, that was that long ago. Life in the 90s was pretty pretty cush. Yeah, and I, I, think, I, think I, I was saying that it's easier part, to get depressed that way. Well, I was wondering that might be part of the problem. I was watching, I was uh, at a pool this morning and I watched a guy uh, swimming alongside my, my brother in law. For those who don't know, he's, he's a disabled athlete. Oh, right? promote this, promote this whole thing. Joyrider Doc, if, if you can. Joyrider Doc, you check it out. It's a documentary. His, his, his brother in law's story is unbelievable. And Greg Grunberg and his team is doing a documentary about it. It's unbelievable. So yeah. Joyrider. He's Joyrider Doc on Kickstarter and all that, or Joyrider Joy documentary on J O Y J O Y Rider Doc, mm-hmm. D-O-C. He's okay. a disabled athlete and he's missing his legs from the leg, from well, the well, waist down. He was a normal guy. In Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. in Czech Republic, what, how many years ago? Ten uh, years ten, ago? Yeah. Ten years ago, and doesn't know what happened, but woke up with his legs cut off. Got, got hit by a train. Got hit by a train, by a, by a car, one of those streetcars, really. Yeah, really, yeah. And, and so he was swimming alongside another man who was, uh, he had, I, I wish I knew what it was, but almost like those like palsy hands. Yeah. Like they were normal size, but they were they couldn't function. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like like, they, like a cerebral palsy or something. Right, right. Yeah. And he, he was swimming, and I was thinking to myself that, I could become Michael Phelps, and I don't get the same gratification that they get out of that's just right. swimming their laps. And I think that that's because it, it, that's a, an analogy for our lives. It's become so awesome to be an American in the modern day. It's pretty hard to find meaning when your life's so cush, you know. Well, I, it, no one is advocating for meaning. That's part of the problem. Yeah, and so everyone's adrift, searching. And and I'm telling you, the piece that everyone misses is that other people are where you find it. And that's what I was sort of referring to your daughter and stuff, is um, we just don't emphasize that, strangely. Yeah. And that's where it all is. It's all – I don't understand why people don't get that. Well, I, I do think that um, – I don't know about so much about the the way children look at it this day. And I'm, when I say children, I'm even like teenagers, early 20s. But for a man, I do find a glaring lack of celebration of love. In modern America, there's no no one really is going to get behind you on Instagram. No one's gonna you're, no one's gonna go to work and be like, "Dude, how you doing, buddy? Let me just tell you, traffic was great. Life's good, isn't it? It just doesn't happen that often. Yeah. There's a lot of misery uh, creates this kind of camaraderie in in modern day. And then you go online and you bitch and moan about everything. People are like, "You're right. Yeah, all it the does suck. Yeah. And and there's just not a real celebration for love. And when you when you do try, you get kind of picked on like yeah and uh and i i don't i don't i I was hoping that people could uncouple the idea that strength and and uh love they they kind of they live symbiotically they're not mutually exclusive you know i I, absolutely and i and i'm not well all many emotions are sort of an expression of strength and, and, and but people feel emotions as something that should be like avoided um i don't know well, I, I another thing I would like to point out, and I don't know would, what you're talking about when you say love, though. Go ahead, point the other. Thing. I wanted you to t- talk about this because there is also a, a growing uh, amount of people that I see, especially much similar to the days after Robin Williams' death. Yeah, they go, well, how could Chris Cornell? Right, like, right. He had a beautiful family. He's Chris right. Cornell. Yeah, everyone he would play to sold out stadiums, and he had money. And why would he be depressed? And same, you know, Robin Williams. Everyone loves Robin Williams. He's rich, and and you go, <laughs> yeah. It's his experience. Yeah. It, and the externals don't mean that much. And Rob Williams, people, I did a podcast with Bobcat Goldthwaite where we talked. Bobcat is one of his best friends. Very close guy, yeah. To- and he told me the final days was horrible. He had something called Louis body dementia, which is an intolerable, miserable condition. And he just sort of wanted to get, he just impulsively took himself out of that. And that was not the usual, it wasn't depression so much as right. this horrible state he was in. Uh, and it was not just the dementia. They have hallucinations and agitation and paranoia and all kinds of crazy stuff with with Lewy body dementias. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sort of feeling all over the place here because there's I'm still not getting it quite yet. 
uh, uh, why Chris Cornell. I'm getting the pieces of it, but I don't know. There have been a lot of other figures that have died of addiction or depression, like you're saying, Robin mm-hmm. Williams, in recent years. I feel like this one was to hit a threshold of some kind. Like this one, that's what we're doing the podcast today because yeah. it really, really affected people. And I get that it affected people your age. I'm getting a, a beat on why, but I think it's more than that. Is there, is there? Well, and also it was so unexpected. Here's another email. My grandmother, a seven years of age, just had knee surgery. The doctor prescribed hydrocodone. She's stubborn. I worried that they might also prescribe a benzodiazepine, which is typical because people on opiates have sleep problems. Mm. Uh, not only that, but she's acting crazy on the hydrocodone, talking nonsense, seeing things. Call her doctor immediately about that reaction. That That is not okay. Plus, there could be something else going on that can precipitate that. But that's how casually we look at these medications it's as a, a medical grandkid. Yeah, but then no one tells the doctors about when no one's following up on this. I don't think the general public – I'm speaking for myself. Yeah. I don't think the general public realizes that that's a real option, like to call someone else's doctor for them. Like, um, yes. Who's the prescribing doctor? You know, that get them on the phone. That person is responsible for your well-being and yeah. care. If not speaking specifically to that physician, talk to one of their staff. I mean you've got to report this. You've got to feed it back. Or they don't know. They don't know what's going on. Right, but I, I think that's one of those things – uh, uh, you being a doctor and practicing for so long, yep. I don't know if the, the general public gets that. I, I guess. You, you, you can reach out to the prescribing doctor. And it's free. It yeah. is free. It's not like talking calling to an attorney. But it does attorney feel it feels intimidating. Or not. I would be intimidated to do so. Oh, you know? I would. I, you know. that, that's the, the, to me, the, t- the reason I'm so despondent about that is it's the demise of primary care. It's because you don't have super... I, I was doing my med- continuing medical education re- recently, and I thought, oh, man, they have dumbed this down a little bit. This is, this is what they expect of, a, of an internist is this? Like, oh, boy, this is not what I used to maintain. So, so yeah. I, have a, I have another uh, yeah. Facebook person in Sharona. Right. My sister's into meth. She's a narcissist and keeps lying and blaming stuff on me well, a lot. Hang on, hang on. That's her meth. That's not her narcissism. She may or may not be a narcissist. It's impossible to tell when somebody's strung out on Like that, the so. neighbors called cops to check on her house, and she told me, like, I called the cops. I did not. Which she is part does- of meth. Meth makes you paranoid towards your family, mm. friends, and neighbors. Okay. I did not. She does this a lot to me, especially. Right. She always family, wants my help and attention. And family and friends. But I do everything to avoid her and try my best to not be involved. And then she said... I have manic depression, big bipolar, and PTSD. The, the woman, woman who's user, asking about her sister? Yeah. So she's, wait, wait, the user does or the person? No, she does. Asking? She says she has that as okay, well. Okay, so she can understand that uh, you know, this, when you've you got bipolar, so when you get depressed or you get manic, that's outside of your control for the most part. And uh, same thing with your sister. She is in an altered state with that meth that makes people paranoid and preoccupied with people around them. Neighbors, coworkers, family, and it is disruptive to relationship because it is paranoid and, and they can get violent and irritable and, and uh, attack. Yeah, I've certainly seen that. Don't don't uh, don't take this lightly. And and also again, Drew pointed out, I think very accurately, don't pin any of her kind of character flaws now on her yeah. because all drugs are bad. You know, all narcotics have bad people around them and all have adverse effects. There's something special about methamphetamine yeah, when it comes to right. violence and paranoia yeah. and, and how it can transform. Uh, opiates will transform someone and make them less of a human. It, they, you yeah. see them losing themselves. They yeah. almost whittle away. Yes. Meth turns people into bad people. Monsters. Bad yeah. people. I mean, I, I did things that I would, could never imagine doing. Is some of that still bothering you? Yeah. I don't. I don't have any. Uh, you need to bri- deal with that. I don't have any. Oh, I mean, is it still bothering me in the sense that I, I look you back feel, on it as a human being? I go, or you man, feel guilty. Or whatever. Yeah, but I, I made my amends. But uh, okay. the the bridges you burn, the bridges I burned in alcohol, uh, kind of. Were, I, I mm-hmm. the bridges I burned with meth. I go. I can't even imagine the world where I would do something like that. Yeah, I'm just. I, I can't even. Can't believe it's a real me. The real me. You know? Yeah. Well, it wasn't. And speaking of paranoia, remember I told you the story about when I took apart the TV because yeah. yeah, tell him I got I was tweaking and I was up for a couple of days smoking crystal meth and I took apart my uh, friend's television. One of the, and it was '90s, so it was like a big, huge box, and I completely disassembled it because I was positive Conan O'Brien was talking to me from within, <laughs> from inside. Yeah, Conan was in yeah, there. So, oh, get you, you son of a bitch, <laughs> sweating. <laughs> get to you. Did you did you have was there an observing part of you that went like that's nutty. What, no, what, what I doing? not till not till weeks later. In. Weeks in. later. All right, here's another email. Needs serious help. I'm 44. I'm addicted to Suboxone. I still, I still, 
I'm supported by my parents at age 44. I'm disabled with fibromyalgia, osteoarthritis, chronic migraines, anxiety, chronic fatigue. I'd love to have a life. I, I, all that is potentially symptoms of being on the high dose of Suboxone, yeah. yeah. And uh, fibromyalgia, you know, that does not get better with opiates for sure. Uh, the one thing I would say about fibromyalgia is people don't say enough of, focus on restoring good sleep. Because have you ever gone days and days without sleeping? You get that kind of achy, horrible feeling. That's fibromyalgia. And if you can get, if you can normalize sleep and sleep hygiene, not just sleep time, but sleep hygiene, the quality of the sleep, the fibromyalgia can settle down a lot. Uh, my son's being treated with Risperidol after a psychotic episode, was also given Ativan, which okay. He wants to take it again as an outpatient after consulting with a psychiatrist, or he will see the psychiatrist in two weeks. He has done meth in the past, and we believe he is bipolar. That's a tough one. Yeah, no, that's that's sort of nuance. He may or may not be an addict. He may have just done meth. Right. Who knows what? How how abuser. hard is it? How hard is it to diagnose bipolar with a stimulant addict? Because when you're really on, hard, when you're I can't on tell it, you how many times I've seen stimulant addicts diagnosed as it's bipolar, exactly bipolar as one. Looks being just, manic. Looks just it is bipolar. It looks you're smoking just like crystal bi- meth. You're just a manic person. It looks like manic. bipolar one, except there's always this weird paranoid preoccupation with people and stuff that that manics may or may not get. Stupid Conan O'Brien. <laughs> Well, yeah, these uh, psychotic uh, psychosis is you get these ideas of reference and things. You get delusional. You think you think people are beaming thoughts into your head. Martians. You think you wear you know the guy in in Breaking Bad. The guy's wearing the foil on his head, yeah. electricity, and all that stuff. That's kind of a psychotic symptom. And um, uh, you know, you, you may see things, you may hear things, you may hear voices, but the delusions are sort of a hallmark. You know, you believe that you're you're something different than you are. And so. Steve has some great ones. Really? Oh yeah. Like what? Like, like a guy coming into his house, his apartment, taking a bong load, sitting down next to him, talking to him, and then just walking into the wall and disappearing. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> like that—that that didn't happen. He's like, no, it didn't. It's totally a just hallucination, delusion. Yeah. All right. So, uh, any other questions out there? Okay. They can't hear me, so it's kind of like. It's, they only hear us. That's I, I true. mean, they're they're all listening. You're, okay, you're good. Okay, but, but if anything they'd like to hear about or things that we'd like to, like um, to hear. So we're I, talking about Facebook Live here for those of you listening to the podcast. Uh, miss seeing you on TV. Thank you. Uh, you're talking to me. Yeah. I want Drew and Mike to have their own podcast, There's even if it's up. once a week. Okay, we're we're, we're contemplating. We go to well, you have to say what I just said. We I don't both, know if we can both, hear me. We both really want that. Yeah, he, I mean, they, we're working towards it. Okay, they, we're, but uh, the producer is saying that people are saying they want us to have our own podcast, which we do. If you go to kbc.com, check out that one. But we'll have a separate one, hopefully. One. <laughs> okay. A, all right. Really, all right. All right. We'll a, do really it. a love line sort of one where we get. We don't have phones in this setup. We only have yeah. what we're doing here. And so we want to get a phone set up before we do that one. So if I could say anything, especially with in the in the wake of Chris Cornell, yeah, it is that we Americans more so than anyone, more so than anyone, love to glorify the, and romanticize one aspect of addiction and alcoholism, and we always neglect to look at the reality of it. Yeah. And the reality of it is Chris Cornell is in a grave, not writing songs about despondency and having throngs of, of yeah. teenage girls cheering for you and it's not uh hemingway getting in fist fights in front of a bar it's hemingway waking up alone with a missing tooth and dylan thomas dead not waxing poetic at, you know in the middle of times square we've done it with all forms of artists and athletes and we and we, uh, we romanticize the very narrow uh, margin of addiction that uh, seems cool, and we always overlook the reality. And the reality is, is that you have d- a bunch of dead people or a, people who are a, on their way. It's a serious medical illness that is potentially fatal, commonly fatal. And you know, there's overlap of other conditions with addiction, like you know, like things like depression and whatnot. And and it makes it very very dangerous, very dangerous. And it it's really important that uh, you you're uh, if you have addiction that whoever's taking care of you really 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 understands that disease or you have somebody in your camp that can at least talk to the physicians the prescribing people who really 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 understand and you listen to like i, I remember um am used to have a woman that, that he would listen to. unfortunately the story goes that somebody said to, to dj am uh when are you gonna stop listening to those people that are trying to brainwash you as soon as that message was delivered by somebody with a prescription pad he was dead in two weeks yeah that's how that works. The guy who I used to really, uh, you know, God rest his soul, I used to like 
AM. really look up to DJ AM. AM. In, oh the, in the recovery community, I was Great like, well, that guy's doing it right. You know, he, I would he say was really that. humble about it because he was at the time when he got out of Crazy Town and became just DJ AM. He had become sober for quite some time and was a superstar and never gave off that. He, he, he right. And he always, I sent him tough cases. He, yeah. he would go to the mat for people. And he always said, he always would tell me, he goes, Look, I am a really serious drug addict. I'm like, like, you didn't see me in my disease, but it's bad when it gets going. And yeah. Bob is devastated. By Chris Cornell's passing. Absolutely. That's why he's not here today. Yeah, Bob, this this Chris Cornell thing, again, it rocked not just people your age. It rocked mm-hmm. the Bob Forrest of the world. It rocked, I know, a lot of you out there. And that's why we set up a podcast today. It was a chance to talk about it. I hope, I hope we kind of got into the landscape properly and helped make sense of it for people. If I could give lot, an analogy. Real quickly, a lot of people yeah. sort of started wanting help in response to Chris Cornell. And that's a good thing. Good. That's why, that's why I started reading a lot of the emails. We got a ton of emails here of people wanting change, wanting sort of waking them up to the to the need to pay as attention. As soon as you want to go. And don't be stigmatized for As soon as you want to step in the ring with your fears and, and the difficulty, that's a good sign. You know, that yeah. you're reaching out. But I was going to say, if analogy. I can make an analogy, um, you ever hear the stories uh, as to why um, Chris Cornell, has, I think, is so devastating? You ever hear those stories, those horrible stories on the news where like a Marine serves four tours? And then comes home to only you know to get hit by a DUI guy yes. with DUI and then yes. he dies and you feel like well that's the guy who gave the ultimate he did it he did it right only to have it all taken away when someone has a long amount of of recovery and does it right yeah. and then they fall to the disease it's like that much more yes. you're like oh yes. man that's, that's the think, guy who went through it he already yes. went through the trenches I, and, and and I think what's really bothering Bob is that we, he is hearing over and over of people being affected by my profession mm. and the prescribing and, and taking people out is really bothering him and I, that's why he's been going off at Suboxone and other things that I, I, I understand I, I understand you have to be very very careful if you're an addict don't take a benzo it's very simple don't take a psychostimulant don't take a benzo don't take an opiate don't drink alcohol that's it yeah. go to meetings it, really it's simple it, it's core you gotta keep it simple uh, and of course if you have other conditions they need to be treated but don't let one of those four classes of medications Enter into your system; yeah. it will activate your disease. Yeah, we have, of course, the uh, the uh, National Assessment, National Addiction Foundation at eight 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 four nine four nine one eight six eight 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 four nine four nine one eight six. They'll help you if you want to try to find a place for treatment. Even if you don't have resources, they will stay on top of you until you find a place. Um, Okay, one more question. One last question: yeah. uh, Do you have any good ways to treat RA without opioids? Rheumatoid arthritis? Yes. Of course. I mean, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, well, there, they, the okay, is there any good ways to treat rheumatoid arthritis without uh, opioids? Now, somebody with rheumatoid arthritis, there are lots of things for rheumatoid arthritis. There's all these biologic agents. There's tons of stuff. Steroids sometimes are necessary. Steroid sparing agents. There's a, there's a million, there's a lot of different options for treating rheumatoid arthritis. But even then, sometimes the disease destroys the joints and causes a lot of pain. If you're an opiate addict, you shouldn't be taking opiates. If you're an addict, you can't take opiates for it. You have to try other modalities. And there's lots of ways, local injections or pain blocks or lidocaine patches or anti-inflammatory or whatever it might be. There's lots of options out there. Again, I would have you take an opiate. I have patients with rheumatoid arthritis that are not addicts that take three Vicodin a day, four Vicodin a day. No problem. Right. And it helps them. But an addict, you can't do that. It will only be only make things worse. If you go over, I always tell people, if you go over three opi- three Vicodin a day, we're we're going to start to get into trouble with this. It's going to start to make things worse. So an occasional use is not a big deal. Um, and again, there's lots of different kinds of options out there, other, other things for which arthritis. But to make sure you're thoroughly and completely treated out there, uh, don't don't uh, don't cut any corners. Ra serious pain, right? Is that it that's can legit? Be, it can yeah. be, but it can be. It's so treatable now. I mean, there's something that can really. We have so many good treatments for it that. But people do still get left with pain for it. And just don't get into high doses of opiates if you can avoid it. And if you're an addict, don't take any opiates because you will escalate. Um, all right. So so I guess what I'm sort of left with, oh, is I wanted to say some things about depression and suicide. Depression is a common thing. Half of Americans experience some form of depression or anxiety at some point in their life. Suicidality is just a sign of the severity of the depression you're in, and again, addicts get it even independent of the of the suicidality. If you have bipolar disorder, you're more likely to commit suicide when you're manic than when you're depressed. That's a, a piece of data people don't recognize. But none of these things should be stigmatized. People should ask about it. If you have friends that are, that are suffering mood disturbances, ask them. You think about hurt yourself. Do you have a plan? If somebody's thinking about hurting themselves, and they have a plan. That's a medical emergency. That's somebody's. That's as bad as if they're saying they're having chest pain and shortness of breath. 
that's a life you can save if you get them to an emergency room, call a mental health service line, whatever it might be. Just don't let this be different than any other organ system. It's a brain. It has symptoms, just like my knees, like rheumatoid arthritis, just like my pancreas, just like my heart. Brain manifests its its conditions, its its disruptions. Uh, because we're all biological, it's never all perfect all the time. The brain manifests through conditions like this. And they are manageable, they are treatable, and they are dangerous. Treat them accordingly. Okay, is that about right? That's about right. Yep. All right, we're going to wrap up. Uh, uh, Ms. Producer, anything uh, before we do wrap it up? Um, thank everybody on Facebook for joining us. Thank you in. on Facebook Live for joining us today. Yes, we appreciate you. it. Uh, thank you for those of you that sent emails. You can do that at com slash contact. Thank you for having uh, me. Yeah, I'm glad. Thank you for coming in, Mike, when Bob couldn't make it. And Bob, I'll be interested to hear when Bob sort of gets a perspective on this, what, what he'll be thinking about it, because he's he's upset, and reasonably so. So it's more than just your generation. It, it sure, rocked a, sure. It rocked a lot of people. And I, I, for him, I think it is... It may also be just sort of the the numbers of people that we've been dealing with that died of prescription deaths yeah. recently. And, and, you know, Chris is not specifically what we've been seeing forever, which is the opioid-benzo combination. Somebody that knows better using that. This is somebody kind of following a program for a while, and yet it still destabilized his disease. He kind of knew better, right? I mean, yeah. he's a long-term recovering guy. And we're just tired of seeing people taken up and people don't understand when this did, condition. When did knowing better stop a drug addict from I, I understand that. You know yeah, that's, that's exactly what? right. But but he, uh, he, I can really understand how he could have rationalized all that easily. Um, and and this this is getting through to people that, uh, you know, Ativan can cause acute depressive symptomatology. And somebody who's already been suicidal, suddenly suicidal, especially in an addict. And his had escalated where he's using more and he was slurring his speech and this kind of stuff, which is inevitable in addiction. If you're taking... These medication, you have a history of addiction. You're you're in danger. That's it. Period. And uh, people, you know, Bob and I always have to argue about Suboxone, whether that's good or bad. That's kind of a special case of all this. Uh, but please be around people that really understand your condition. My my deepest concern about all this prescribing of Suboxone is being done by people that don't really understand addiction. And uh, you know, they're they're allowed doctors allowed to like up to two hundred fifty patients on Suboxone. I, I couldn't do twenty. I couldn't do twenty. And, yeah. and I know what I'm doing. And it's kind of if you're going to take 50 or 100, it kind of means to me you may not fully understand what you're into unless you have a team around you or you have a full team that is there for for those patients. And the stakes are death. That's yeah. the crazy part. Yeah. You know, we're not talking about like, oh, you might lose some hair. No. This Bad is skin. A, this is a dangerous disease. And and in, if, you know, if you don't die, it takes your life away from you. Yeah. And your relationships and everything else. So. All right, Mike, thanks so much. Uh, anything you want to plug other than the joyrider, uh, doc.com? Just your sweet butt. All right. We'll, we'll, uh, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't laugh at him. All right. We'll see you, we'll see you next time. <laughs>